Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. coming to a passage. We're continuing on in John chapter 8. Um, and so just to kind of, as a way of introduction here, um, what we're dealing with this morning is part one of a two-part sermon, so to say. Um, we're going to look at verse 31, and we're going to examine that, and then we're going to look at the objections um, that the Jews who are hearing, some of which are believing, some of which are not, and, and the objections that they make so that we can, we really want to examine the objections. And then secondly, we want to examine how Jesus responds to them. Now, this morning we come to one, uh, this statement that is incredibly blunt and simultaneously is obviously incredibly true because it comes from our Lord's mouth. This morning we have to deal with the fact that the Lord looks at men and calls them helpless. And there is probably nothing more offensive to the natural man than to hear that he is actually helpless. That there is nothing that we can do. We think that we are mighty, that we are strong, all the while in that profession, realizing that we are in fact impotent. We have no power. We are weak. We are frail. And as we'll look at this passage, we will not only see that we are weak and frail, but that we are bound. We're bound. And so this morning, I would like to, first of all, um, examine three things. The first thing we will do is examine uh, the evidence and the fruit of the true disciple. Secondly, we will hear those many reject Christ offered due to their their overestimation of self. We'll see Jesus' kind rebuke. And lastly, we will examine Christ's liberating work. So with that being said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, we'll make our way through verse 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to, by your grace, do what disciples do. Lord, to abide in your word, to trust your word, to say the same thing that your word says. And so we come this morning, Lord, hoping, praying that by your grace and by your spirit that you will conform us to the image of Christ by the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we ask you once again, as we always do, to be faithful to your promises, to accomplish the purpose that you've set out for the scriptures this morning, that they might be applied to our heart and that we might walk in faithful obedience to our Lord and King. It is in his name and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to, like I said, it's going to be a, a kind of a two-parter. So the first thing we're going to do is examine what Jesus says in verse 31. Then we're going to take one of his objections, one of the objections to the, the Jews are making, um, and examine that and hopefully come to some pretty glorious conclusions. So let's start in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So um, what we find here is essentially an if-then statement. Now, it's, it's a very interesting if-then statement that almost has these steps to it. And so the first thing that I want to do is examine the word abide. I want you to notice the text here. There's this statement, if you abide in my word. Well, we have to know what abide is before we can aim to do it in his Word. So the word abide is not the idea of you stumbling upon something. It's almost more of the idea of you resting your head on. It's that pillow in which we rest all the time. When you think about abide, I think about the, the old phraseology, right? The, our humble abode. It's where we rest. It is actually our address. And so what Jesus is saying is he's looking at these people and he's saying to them, you must abide in my word. Now we see a very similar statement to this coming later on in John chapter 15. But when you look at this passage and you see this idea of abiding, of resting in something, immediately what comes to mind is the idea of walking in your home at the end of a hard day, a hard day work. You walk in the door and immediately you find your rest. You find comfort. You find peace there. The idea of abiding in his word is the idea of finding your rest completely and totally there. Now, if we are to abide in his word, we must also ask, what is his word? Now, I know the knee-jerk reaction is going to be what? What we have here before us, right? We want to rest in the word of God. As we come to the scriptures, we want to come and look and rest comfortably in what God has said. He has indeed spoken and we should rest there. Now, I'm quick to say that, but simultaneously, we have to come to some different conclusions. When we come to this passage, you must abide in my word, it's making reference to something specific. It's making reference to Jesus' claims at the present. These people have heard. They have heard Jesus make proclamations that he is the light of the world, that anyone who comes to him will never thirst again, that he will give them living water. In just a moment, we're going to see him make another I am statement and say, before Abraham was, I am. When it says that we rest, that we abide, it is saying that we rest in his word in the sense that we say the same thing that he says. This is the great difficulty of our day because very many people will say that they rest and abide in the word of God. And they will be making reference to the text that we have before us. And I would encourage you, perhaps, if you would like to see this most clearly illustrated, you can find it on most doctrinal statements of churches. The very first statement of any doctrinal statement will be in regard to the scriptures that what Jesus has revealed to his people, they will be the first thing to be examined because if we get that wrong, we'll get everything else wrong. But what we find more often than not is people will say they abide in the word and all of a sudden as you watch and look at the doctrinal statements to follow, they quickly move on and divorce themselves from the authority of God's teaching. Brothers and sisters, what it means to abide in the word of God and the word that Christ is making reference to is that we say the same thing that he says without exception. This is the danger. More often than not, there is some exception. There's something that rubs us the wrong way. Perhaps there is something that we have some emotional connection to, and we think, well, Jesus possibly certainly couldn't have meant that. Last week, we examined the idea of you will die in your sin unless you believe I am. That's what he's telling them to rest in. That's a difficult place to rest for some. 
But brothers and sisters, if we look at this text and we say, I'm going to abide in the word, meaning that I'm going to abide in the truth that certainly that if I am to reject the teaching of Christ, then I will indeed die in my sin. But should I believe that he is who he says he is, should I believe that he is indeed the I am, then I will certainly be saved. That's the idea of resting in his word. It is saying the same thing that Christ says and teaches. We find that most clearly today in, yes, the scriptures. That means that when we come to passages that are difficult for us, we don't simply turn the page because we don't desire to spend any extra time examining them should they convict us. It is instead looking at them and saying, Christ is true and I am a liar. It is saying that what God has revealed in holy writ is absolute truth without exception, without error. And so when we come to this passage, Jesus is telling them, if you abide in my word, this is the if part of the statement. The second part of the statement is incredibly glorious because it says, you are truly my disciples. Have you ever considered the folly that Jesus has disciples and he makes them of us? I mean, consider for a minute who he calls. He calls tax collectors and fishermen. And should we even go to the more spiritual sense, he calls dead men and says, come be my disciple. It's always Christ acting on them and saying, come be mine. Come be my disciple. I will identify myself with you. I can't even begin to break apart the glory of that, that he would look at ruined sinners and not only desire to reveal himself in a way that he can be clearly and truly known, but simultaneously invite them into a glorious and personal relationship with them. The idea of a disciple is someone who follows so closely behind a teacher that everything they do is in step with him. If you rest, abide in my word, then And only then will you be my disciple. We have, this word is scattered throughout church language, churchanese, if you will. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? And we, we, we major on discipleship here. We are about men sitting down with men and pouring their lives into them. We're about women sitting down together and discussing the truths of God's word that they might grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Friends, we don't aim to make disciples of other men in this church. We aim to make disciples of Christ. Nothing else. I don't care if you look like me at the end of the day or frankly any other person in here. We want you to look like Jesus. At the end of the day, what you find is we're not asking you to rest in something that we present to you. We're asking you to rest in the word of God. We long to say the same thing about everything under the sun that Christ has said. That's what it means for us to be a disciple. And brothers and sisters, should you aim to make disciples, your goal is not to make them look like you. Your goal is to pour the truth of God's word into them that they may rest their head on that glorious pillow. It is a sweet and glorious truth that he calls these men to be his disciples. Now, there is a progression that we find here. It says, if you abide in my word, then you'll truly be my disciple. If you're truly my disciple, then you will know the truth. In our day and time, truth is perhaps the most fickle thing under the sun, it seems. Men don't really hold to it any longer. Truth is fluid. It's based upon your interpretation of things. This idea of a postmodern worldview. If you've ever had a conversation with a true uh, postmodernist, it is like nailing jello to a wall. You can't get them to say anything is true. It is the most, give me an atheist any day of the week, but that idea of a postmodern, it's impossible to have a conversation because they deny truth altogether. Perhaps there is nothing that reveals the depravity of man than denying that truth even exists. Brothers, what you find is in knowing Christ, we will know truth. 
And the glory of knowing truth is the truth will indeed set you free. Now I want you to consider for just a moment what Jesus has said to these people who just a verse earlier in verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. These people are starting to see the glory of Christ. Many are indeed believing in him, I believe, in a salvific way. But simultaneously, you have before him not just one type of people, but you have the masses. There are many there. Yes, certainly many have believed in him. But simultaneously, many have not. And what you hear and what they would begin to hear is you're telling me then that I must be set free. I'm not a slave. And then he goes on to say that your identity should essentially be to be my disciple. So they they pose two major objections here. The major objection, the first one is that we are offspring of Abraham. Our major identifying mark is that we are of Abraham. It is what most clearly identifies us. It's their favorite identity. And you have these people you talk with, the very first thing out of their mouth, nine times out of ten when they're introducing themselves, is something that they love about themselves, something that identifies them. Men are the worst at this just in general. You shake someone's hand, hey, my name's so-and-so, I do this. Men tend to find their identity in their work. Nothing wrong with that. God's given work, but it should not be our foremost identity, right? And so what you find is these Jews are placing all of their identity, their weight, their merit in the fact that they are offspring of Abraham. This elevates them above every other people group in the earth. They are of God. They are of Abraham. That's their first objection. We'll deal with that more thoroughly next week. Their second objection is we have never been enslaved. Now, If you look at verse 33, you'll see this clearly. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I love this. I love this verse. Because you look throughout the Old Testament, the people group of the Jews have been enslaved multiple times. A plethora, it's a good word, of times. They are constantly in bondage. And the entire time they're in bondage, they have missed the living illustration that they are in bondage to something far greater than a mean or cruel master. When they were enslaved in Egypt, when they were delivered by the mighty hand of God, that was not meant to show them that he was just the deliverer from a certain people group. It was meant to, it was meant to show them and reveal to them that he is the great deliverer from a true and worse and more heinous slave master. And so when they say this, they make this profession that we have never been enslaved. And let me tell you what that essentially means to them. If they say that they have never been enslaved, then they are not looking for anyone to rescue them. They are looking at Jesus amidst all of these glorious statements that he's offering them. Come to me and you will see. Come to me and I will give you living water. Come to me and you will not die in your sin. And they look at him and say, we're not slaves. We don't need anybody to set us free. We've never been enslaved. Certainly, very likely, they're considering their own lifespan. They've never been enslaved, all the while bound and blind to the fact that they are bound, which perhaps is the worst place to be. The very most crucial part of the gospel we find is is in the man or woman is the idea of understanding that I am indeed a wretched sinner enslaved to sin. And so what I'd like to do is Look at Jesus' rebuke this morning. The the whole portion, the whole thing we're going to examine from this point forward is looking into Jesus' rebuke of them. Now, we'll see that he'll rebuke the idea of them saying we are offspring of Abraham next week, but Jesus immediately attacks 
the idea that they are not slaves. He looks at them and immediately goes to war with this thought. Because, I mean, I think this is just Jesus being the clarity, the mouthpiece of the grand proclamation of the Old Testament that you need me. You need me to rescue you. If you do not have me to rescue you, then you will die in your sin. And so what does he do? Look at verse 34. We'll go through verse 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Let's look at this. First, everyone who practices sin. If I could for a moment, perhaps it would be wise for us to examine our own hearts here for a moment. Everyone who practices sin. Brothers and sisters, there is not a soul under the sun who does not practice sin. And we practice it well and often. Now, the major issue here, I think, probably, is that we don't really genuinely believe that sin is something so heinous that it would bind us to itself and long to take us to the grave. So for just a moment, I would like to examine the true wickedness of sin. There's a whole book on this that I would almost prescribe to you called The Sinfulness of Sin. I encourage pretty much every saint to read it. But should we look at this and not immediately feel bound and not immediately feel the weight, the gravity of being told that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin? So the first thing that we'll examine is the idea of practicing sin. The idea here is that we walk in it. It's honestly the same tense that we find in abide. The idea of abiding in the truth of God's word and resting in it is the same thing we look at when we say that it is the idea of us practicing sin. It is our address. It is where we most like to dwell. It is where we most like to dwell. It is that which has we, we, that comforts us amidst difficulty. It is that which we run to to give us some semblance of pleasure here below. But friends, what I need you to understand is the true depravity of sin. Death is not as wicked as sin. Satan is not as wicked as sin. Sin is in its own category that has caused the fall of not one but two races. We see the angels fall due to it. And we see men, men who are created in the image of God fall. It is this substance, this absence of godness, this wickedness in the human heart that makes us so incredibly, hear me when I say this, repulsive to the holy God. And we love it. We would rather spend our days in sin than anywhere else. When we sin, when we make a practice of it, we look at God and we say, you are not sufficient. There is not in your presence fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are not pleasures forevermore. The pleasures that we find here are completely and totally opposite of you. I want you to feel the weight of this. All the while, all of these things are being proclaimed by our practice of sin, and we still bear his image. It is a mar, it is a ultimate rebellion and hatred of the image that God has given us. And we make a practice of it. And since we have made a practice of it, and since our father Adam made a practice of it, from that moment forward, we have been bound to it. This is perhaps the greatest folly that we have divorced this idea that we are not only people who sin we are sinners that sin and since our father adam fell in the garden we have been living in that perhaps you've heard the argument and i will make this quickly hopefully that men have free will 
You have free will so far as it does not defy your master. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, brothers and sisters, you are bound to that sin lest one come rescue you. You will sin. You will rebel against the holy God. But by his grace, we will find in him a perfect redeemer, one who will break the shackles of sin on our lives. This is why all of these grand illustrations that we find in the Old Testament, when we see the, the, the uh, exodus When we see them being broken and freed, that was only by a mighty act of God. The only way that any soul will ever be freed from slavery to sin is by a mighty act of God. And so what we find is this idea of anyone who practices sin, which is certainly us, we then are by necessity slaves to sin. And I hope, hopefully, You have seen clearly the wickedness of sin because honestly, I can't make the good news good enough if you don't understand the bad news. The gospel will never taste as good to you unless you know who you were. If you do not understand that everything in you was in blatant rebellion, looking at the creator God and saying, I hate you over and over again by every deed, act, and thought, then you will never understand the glory that God would come in his infinite grace and break the shackles of sin and ransom you to himself. One of the greatest frustrations I have, in particularly at Easter, is we will spend an entire sermon examining the love of God in the cross of Christ, and we should. But brothers and sisters, if we never understand who we are, what took place there, the wrath of God do us for our sinfulness, we will never, ever savor and love the cross of Christ like we should. Never. We don't believe sin is as wicked as it actually is. And we don't believe it has the power to captivate us. And we're blind to it. But there is good news. With all of that bad news, there's excellent news. We find in verse 34 and following, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I love this language. Every time we come across a text that says indeed in it, my soul rejoices because it's always on the other side of a grand truth. We were in bondage to sin. The glory is in the past tense, brothers and sisters. You were in bondage to sin. That's why Ephesians 2.1 is so glorious. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, were dead, once walked. And if you can make that glorious proclamation that that was something that I was, then by God's grace, he has set you free. You are no longer a slave to sin, which is good news. But we have to ask the question, how is it then that we are set free? Well, the beauty of this is I don't really have to exegete this text because Paul kind of already did. In Romans chapter 6, I'd actually go ahead and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 and following. I don't don't have to spend a whole bunch of time giving you my thoughts on this passage because I'm convinced that Paul examines this passage very clearly in the glorious book of Romans. Romans, the first three or two and a half chapters, examines how wicked men are, that they are in desperate need of some type of redemption. And then from that point forward, we see the glorious gospel played out. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we see this. So the question is, how does the Son set you free? It says that He sets you free, and if if you've been set free by the Son, you are set free indeed. So Romans chapter 6 elaborates on this for us. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The answer to how we are set free in the cross of Christ is brothers and sisters at the cross of Christ, you died. We call it penal substitutionary atonement. And often we major on the penal, the idea that the penalty occurred. But there is the same idea of a substitute, a glorious substitute. When we look to the cross of Christ, we can see our slavery be conquered because Christ paid that price in full. He has redeemed us. He bore our wickedness, our bondage and captivity to sin on the cross of Christ that we might be free. And apart from his atoning work, you would never be free. It owned you. But you died. And brothers and sisters, when you died, sin has no real delight or possibility of keeping a corpse beauty is that at the death of Christ, we see that we died. But the glorious truth is, brothers and sisters, that Christ did not stay dead, did he? And when we look at his resurrection, we live not in our former selves of being captive and slave to sin. Instead, we live not in our own power or our own might, but we live in the resurrection life of Christ. We live because he lives. And that's how he set us free. When we look to the cross, you should. You should see yourself dead there. That all of my wickedness, all of my sin, all of my captivity, everything that sin had on me is dealt with in full at the cross of Christ. It no longer can enslave me. It doesn't have the power because I have a better master who bought me. We can almost look at sin and say, come and get me. You can't. I've been bought. I've been ransomed. Sin no longer has a hold on me. Now, the tragedy is that though sin no longer have a hold on us, we are not bound to it, it is no longer our master. What is perhaps the most tragic thing is that we often find ourselves running back to it. Now, we have the beauty of being freed from sin's snare. I want you to notice Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is perhaps the sweetest thing. Do you know how it is that we are slaves of righteousness? Do you know how it is that each and every time we do any type of good work that God has laid out for us, any time that occurs, there should be absolutely no credit due you. You are slaves of righteousness by the finished work of Christ. The reason that you act appropriately, the reason that you act in accordance with God's will is because God has set you free from sin and bought you into a perhaps the most glorious slavery to Him. Now that's something that we often perhaps have a little friction with. Well, brothers and sisters, you're a slave to one thing or the other and I will gladly be a slave to my master who bought me. What is most tragic is that I am less faithful to him than I was to my former. I was a perfect, perfect slave to sin. My flesh loved it, delighted in it. There was nothing I did that was ever in rebellion against it. But we have been brought into a loving relationship with Christ our Lord and somehow still we rebel. We rebel. But 
It's no longer something that captivates us. We're free from it. It should, by necessity, then repulse us when we rebel. Do you remember being frustrated at your sin in the days of your lostness? I loved my sin. I'll never forget the day that I was caught doing something I shouldn't have been doing. My dad looks at me and he says, do you feel that guilt in your soul? And I nodded yes because I wanted to get out of trouble. But in reality, no. Because I was dead. I was pleasing my master. I loved my sin. But brothers and sisters, should you have a distaste and a hatred for sin, know that your your slavery has been broken. You have been ransomed because we loved our sin beforehand. But if there is a distaste, a hatred for sin now, it is done only by the finished work of Christ so that we are freed from sin snare. It no longer has dominion over us. But the, perhaps one of the most glorious truths is we are free from sin's fruit as well. Going on to Romans chapter 6, verse 22 through 23, it says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then that perhaps most famous verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are free from sin's fruit. Sin's fruit is death, but by God's grace, you've been ransomed out of that. And now there is something different happening in your life. There is always fruit for whatever occurs. There is some type of of product. And what you find is being a slave to righteousness ultimately leads to fruit that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we have a great and glorious master. If you have been ransomed from sin's snare, you have also been ransomed from sin's fruit. Death is no longer yours because Christ has indeed paid for it in full. You can't take it up. It's been dealt with. And now all you have by his grace is fruit which leads to sanctification and sanctification which leads to life eternal. We rarely fix our eyes there. I mean, we rarely fix our eyes on life eternal. When we consider the reward set before us, we should find ourselves on our faces before the holy God that by his grace, he broke our shackles, brought us into a loving relationship with him as yes, as Paul delighted in being called a slave. We should rejoice that life eternal is on the horizon and life eternal is not something that is like what we have here below at all. Life eternal is dwelling in perfect harmony with the triune God, free not only from sin's snare, not only from its fruit, but also by the end from its presence. That when all is said and done, the cross of Christ actually conquered everything. No longer is the fruit available to us because he paid it. No longer are we enslaved to it because we've been purchased by his redeeming blood. Now the glorious thing here is we are not only ransomed to be a slave. We rejoice in that, man. Sign me up, right? If you're telling me that I get to wait tables in the court of the king of kings, sign me up. What a glorious task. I would rather wait his table than spend anywhere apart from his presence. So if you're offering me in the cross of Christ slavery only to the God of the universe, I am there. And I come to this passage that wrecks me every time. I come to certain passages in scriptures that I read and I think to myself, it can't be true. Romans 8, verse 15 through 17 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the most crazy verse in all of Scripture to me. I get it. I get being a slave. I understand. I know who I was. I was bound to sin. It makes perfect sense that in slavery to sin, I might be released, that I might be a slave to another, a better master, certainly. But the idea of not just being a slave, but being exalted to the place of son or daughter. We're glad servants. But should you be ransomed by the finished work of Christ, you are not only a servant, you are a son and daughter. The finished work of Christ is what adopts you into his family. You have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear of a master. No, you look at him and you call him father. Father. And not just this weak, distant term of he's the one who fathered us, but instead one that you love, you know that you are endeared to. You know that he always is working together for your good. When we see this, when we understand who we were, slaves to sin, and then see that, yes, we've been brought out of that and we're a a slave to our new and better master, but he would not have us only as slaves. He wants us as sons and daughters, not waiting his table, but dining at it. That's the glory of the gospel of Christ. When we look here and these men are looking at Jesus and saying to him, I don't need to be rescued. So hear me this morning, self-righteous one. You need to be rescued. Perhaps the most terrifying thing I could imagine is on that day of glory and dread, you stand before your maker and you say, I was a child of Abraham. I was a member of a church. I, was, um, I read my Bible every day. I prayed often. That if that is what you present, if you stand before the high king of heaven and you present your deeds, you present your self-righteousness, then you can rest very comfortably knowing he will say to you, away with you. Forgive me for the gravity, but it's serious matter. Christ and him crucified is how we enter those glorious gates. There is no other means of entry. There never has been another means of entry. We look at him and we say, that's the one who bought me. And in that, you rest comfortably. He keeps those he buys. It is a glorious truth that we have here, our weakness, our frailty, our captivity. And simultaneously, we see the might of the glorious gospel of Christ to ransom and redeem the most lost. Now, for the saint in here, what does that mean for us? I mean, we rest in that, we treasure it, we should often meditate upon the gospel of Christ. We should preach it to ourselves daily. When you find yourself fearing that you might be lost, remember that Christ purchased you. And if he purchased you, then he will keep you. And not only here below, but he will keep you throughout, throughout all of eternity because he keeps what he bought. But simultaneously, what then, how do we live? Well, we live as disciples. We live as disciples of the Most High God who bought us. We evidence our sonship by walking in obedience to the Holy God. Going back up to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. This is what he says to each and every soul who repents and follows Christ. If you abide in my words, the first thing here is abide in the truth of God's word. 
Do not find yourself turning to the left or to the right. They might offer you all types of solutions, but they are not God's solutions. Sometimes the Lord calls you to do things that the world will look at you and call you nuts. I shouldn't say sometimes, most of the time. He says, abide in my word. Saint, abide in the word of God. You have a perfect revelation from him found in the New Testament and Old Testament alike. We look to the scriptures and he attests, he shows us the gospel of Christ everywhere we look and reveals to us how then we are to live. Should you go anywhere else, you have made a gross detour. That's why there's constant warning. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Ride the golden mean of God's word. Trust him. Know that he is true. Rest in his word. It will lead you into truth and the truth will set you free. Now, we have this idea perhaps of a freedom that is instantaneous. We see that at justification. But brothers and sisters, our souls always need to be purged of lies. Always. They echo often. Last night I was walking out of my study and I'm hearing as I'm about to go lay down that I have not spent enough time in prayer, that I have not spent enough time in his word that day. Brothers and sisters, certainly we want to pray without ceasing. Certainly we want to abide in the word of God. But I can tell you what that voice was. Work, Lawson. Work. Work for your righteousness. Work for your eternity. Then I went downstairs. I laid my head on my pillow and preached the gospel to myself. And I slept well. We need our minds ever constantly purged of lies. They are purged most clearly in the light of the revelation of the scriptures. So flee there often because in them you have freedom. Not only freedom and justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, but you have by God's grace in it a means by which we can renew our mind as Romans 12 says. May we often find ourselves there. And if you be here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus, do not be the fools who look at him and say, I am not a slave. You are. And you need someone to rescue you. Not a single soul here below can. We can offer you the means by which salvation can be provided. We can offer you the gospel of Christ. And brother or sister, if you look to him, you will find one who is able to break every bondage to sin. And he will release you and by his grace will adopt you not only, not only as a servant, but will bring you into his house as a son and daughter.